0: What's going on, everybody? This is Jerome Moore, host and creator of Deep Disc Conversations. And firstly, I want to say thank you for all of this support and thank you for exploring the perspectives of social change with me on this platform. I want to encourage you all to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform. And make sure you give us a five star rating if you're loving the Deep Disc Conversations. I appreciate all of the support again. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Sal Brill, welcome to the platform. How are you doing?
1: I am so good. How are you doing?
0: You know, I'm just making it, trying to dodge
1: all of the variants <laughs> that are I, out here. Right? I'm just waiting for the Omega variant.
0: <laughs> you know, it's here. You know, we just have to figure out a way to navigate it. We're
1: going to get through um,
0: it. Yeah, we're going to get through. We, I guess we don't have a choice,
1: right? No, uh, we got to survive.
0: Yeah, we got to survive. Um, and we're surviving <laughs> and thriving. We
1: are, we are. It's <laughs> thriving during the survival process. Right,
0: <laughs> right. But, um, You are a candidate for a district attorney of Davidson County. I am. How do you feel about that?
1: I am excited, I'm thrilled. Uh, We need change and we need criminal justice reform now. And so I'm the person who can get that done now.
0: So um, for people who don't know Sarah, give us a little bit, like I know you probably have a long tenure in the criminal legal system and just life, right? So give us an abbreviated, the significant like punchlines of like why the criminal legal system what happened or what didn't happen in your life that made you want to get in this particular um, kind of profession, this sector, that is male dominated to it at that. Um can you break that down for us a little bit? Of
1: course. I'll give you the short story of my life so I don't bore you to tears, <laughs> but I'm originally from Missouri, okay. and um, I grew up in a in a family, you know, in the Midwest, um, ate a lot of pizza, so, um, you, you know. You're in the right place now. I am yeah. in the right place. I feel very comfortable, <laughs> um, and I'm the first woman in my family to graduate college, And when I went to college, I went to Duke University Okay. and loved basketball. So huge basketball fan, really enjoyed that, camped out for tickets, did the whole Cameron crazy thing, (laughs) loved it, Uh, and then came here for law school. So in 2006, Mm -hmm. moved to Nashville and loved it, loved it so much. And what changed the trajectory of my legal career while I was in law school is um, I started a street law program at Thistle Farms.
0: Oh, Okay. I Thistle Farms. Right?
1: Oh, we love Thistle Farms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it really did change my life. So um, I didn't know which direction I was going to go in the law until mm-hmm. I got to law school. And when I met these amazing women who were survivors of sex abuse, mm-hmm. uh, child sexual abuse, human trafficking, domestic right. violence, uh, rape, I mean, all sorts of horrifying things that had happened to them, um, I said, this is where I can make a difference, because I had seen where the criminal justice system had failed these women. And I knew that there was something that I could do to fight for them.
0: What sparked that initial interest of just wanting to be in law, though, right? Like, I know some of us grew up, like, for example, me. I thought I was going to the NBA, right? Didn't happen. Right. <laughs> I'm here. It didn't happen, right? Um,
2: there's but still, like, there's up, still time. <laughs>
0: yeah, maybe. Maybe, you know, <laughs> I'm 31. Ah, maybe. Um, what is, like, so what is the... Uh, what really made you want to get into like before you applied to like you know law school and everything like that like what said to you or what happened or what influences was like law is kind of what i want to be a part of
1: Sure. This is going to sound cheesy, but um, it's pizza. It's pizza <laughs> themed, cheese, so yeah. right, extra cheese. Uh, so really my dad, uh, my dad was a lawyer, okay. um, first oh, okay. in his family to graduate college, okay. first lawyer in the family. And I saw how active he was in the community and mm-hmm. how people came to him to solve problems. Right. People who had problems would come to my dad. And when I was little, I got to go to the office with him and watch people come in and have problems. And he would help solve it. He was chairman of the. United United way right. uh, just really involved in our community and that's something that inspired me and I said well I want to be able to help people right. and I'm a huge history buff Okay. so when I really started studying American history and mm-hmm. got into it and I majored in history and Russian but okay. I know interesting right um, I'm interested in a lot of types of history and languages right. but for history I realized that you know I can be a history professor and mm-hmm. teach it or lawyers are the people who tend to make history because mm. they are the problem solvers. Right. They're the movers and shakers that you're reading about in the textbook. Right. And especially the women who right. are breaking through in the legal field right. because women have only had the right to vote for the past hundred years. Right. And so where can you make a difference? And I see you know, RBG mm-hmm. and these women who were rising, again, in male-dominated fields, right. but who were fearless right. and willing to stand up for what was right and against discrimination
0: and so i think history is a like is a good point um to kind of dive in deep right this is deep dish so we like to get deeper, i'm ready Talk right? about so history You talking about american history you're talking about the criminal if you're talking about the history of the criminal legal system um that disproportionately affects brown and black folks you know in this country um in this city in this state um as a person that's a white woman right um how do you balance that how do you think about that in in, in in those who may look at you like, ah, well, you know, she's in the criminal legal system, but does she really have that culture competence when it comes to people of color, Latinx community, black folks, um, and all those people that we know that has been historically disenfranchised around structural racism, discrimination, um in this criminal legal system here in the United States.
1: Absolutely. It is undeniably an unjust system and it is a system full of disparities and mm-hmm. I've seen it. And you know, who am I, you know, as a right. white woman to come in and say like I am the one in this moment uh, to take charge of this issue when I have white privilege and I absolutely recognize that I do and my experiences are different. I can say that I have personally experienced gender discrimination, mm-hmm. which is something very specific. I am traveling around the state of Tennessee. I've um, been called little lady, sweetheart, lady lawyer, all sorts of different things those like that. All of those, right. yes. And it does, it, it pierces a person, but I can't say that I've had the experiences of anyone from the community of color or someone whose language is not, first language is not English. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't, but I can say that as a civil rights prosecutor and someone with a foundation of a civil rights background, especially the federal perspective, Mm -hmm. um, I am uniquely positioned in this role to understand how the criminal justice system is um, very disparaging uh, against people from different backgrounds and I want to change it. I've prosecuted people for hate crimes that's based on race, religion, nationality, gender, sexual orientation, disability, protected classes under the law. And I'm the only candidate with a civil rights background. And for this period of time, in this moment, it is crucial that we have someone who has a civil rights background and who understands the law and who understands the disparities and the burden of proof in those cases because it's a tough time in our society. It's It's a crucial moment. And I see this election as a pivotal moment for civil rights and for Nashville to really change the trajectory of our criminal justice system. And I think we need to do that through the first Mm. civil rights criminal justice audit.
0: Justice. You know, I've heard this, I've heard our criminal legal system be referred to as the criminal legal system, legal, criminal justice system, justice, criminal punishment system, punishment. What does justice mean and look like to you? Um, and what does that look like as you as a DA of Davidson County?
1: Justice to me means equity for all, regardless of your background, your socioeconomic status, your race, your nationality, whether you're documented, undocumented we should be able to dispense justice in a way that is blind. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's the goal. It's not the reality, but it is the goal and it should be. So how do we try to work towards that goal? And it's the job of the district attorney to do that and not just pay lip service to it. It's so easy to say justice is blind. It's easy to say that, you know, we're gonna increase diversity. It's easy to say that we're gonna make these surface changes I, this is deep dish conversations. Right. I want to dig deep right. into the criminal justice system. Right. We have to change it from a policy standpoint. We have to change it where the system is broken. Right, And that's the difference between me and the current administration.
0: What role do you feel that the DA plays in criminal justice reform?
1: Oh, the DA is crucial. It is the key player in criminal justice reform. And if we haven't seen it yet, which I don't believe we have, um, we need to see it now. We need to see it yesterday. So I am running on a platform of criminal justice reform now. It has to happen from someone who understands the system. Mm -hmm. And I have been a local, state, and federal prosecutor. I understand what works in the system and what doesn't work in the system. And there are a lot of things that don't work and that we need to fix. But I've also had a background in getting legislation passed as well. And that's where we need to focus on the policy standpoint. A DA should be working mm-hmm. to change the law where the law is unjust.
0: Where are some of those things that are not working that you realize that you really wanna you know, reform or restruct or just change altogether um, in our criminal legal system um, here in, in, um, in, in Tennessee, Nashville, Davidson
1: County? Well, I think the very first step that we have to do is the audit that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. So this civil rights, criminal justice system audit in Nashville, because until we lift up that rock and we shine a light in a dark place, Mm -hmm. we're not gonna understand where exactly the disparities are in the system all the way from arrest to sentencing. We need to know, and we need it broken down by precinct. We need to understand what's happening in our city first. And only when we start from a place of understanding are we gonna be able to really address it. We have to be brave enough to do that, and to date, no one has been. That initiative has to come from the DA's office, and I'm fully prepared to do that day one. We need to start that process of figuring out what's happening in our system, and then Training, we know that there's bias, and we know that there's bias at every level. So we can do training, of course, to prevent police violence. That's what I've been doing through Mm -hmm. the Department of Justice. For the past year, I've been going around training corrections officers, law enforcement officers, on federal civil rights violence prevention. You you don't want to have to prosecute people. That's always a goal. I don't want to prosecute people. I'd rather prevent the problems before they start. And that starts at a system level.
0: Police. Let's talk about police. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Hot topic. Very hot topic. In our our society and our culture. And I think um, with uh, a recent ruling um, in the concerning case of uh, Daniel Hambrick, um, and, you know, um, send my condolences, always to his family, um, there was this decision made by our current um, DA, Glenn Funk, on how a plea deal was done um, with the officer in that case. How would you, if DA, how would you handle um, a fatal use of force um, by police um, in Nashville?
1: Every use of force has to be investigated and it can't just be investigated internally in all cases. As a federal civil rights prosecutor, that's what I did. Mm -hmm. I, I worked with the FBI to investigate uh, excessive force cases. I've been in so many jails um, involving situations where the victim is the inmate, right. and that's really turning the system on its head. So when I'm in a jury trial, my, my victim is the inmate, and it, that's a very different perspective than a lot right. of prosecutors have. Right. And so in those situations, you have to have an outside organization look in and be able to be objective about the investigation. I have the relationships, local, state, and federal, to make sure that those cases are being investigated, that they are being handled by the right person. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those cases can't be taken locally because we don't have that objectivity. We have to make sure that they are then being investigated federally. And those are federal civil rights crimes if they involve excessive force, to a degree involving willfulness. And there's a lot of calculation that goes into it, but they all have to be investigated. Shootings have to be investigated, period. And it takes law enforcement to investigate law enforcement. Um, So these are complex cases, but we have to have that cooperation at every single level. And I've not seen that cooperation under the current administration. I want to bring more cooperation to the office within the community and within the law enforcement community as well.
0: Do you support uh, we have a, I think an amazing community oversight board here in Nashville. Um, do you support uh, community I mean community oversight policing and law enforcement and um, and what are ways that community can continue that oversight in a healthy way uh, with our you know local MNPD?
1: So I support transparency in every form. I think transparency is crucial, and I think objectivity is crucial. So an oversight board, absolutely. We need one. Um, So we need to continue that process. And how I want to strengthen relationships in our community, especially as they pertain to to law enforcement, is by focusing on crime prevention, and for me, crime prevention and looking at what's working in other cities, what's not working, different structures, I want to assign the existing assistant DAs in the office Mm -hmm. to precincts. And I want to do that for a couple of reasons. But the main one is to prevent crime. We need to understand the neighborhoods that we're serving. And we need to be visible in a way that prosecutors typically are not. People know who the defense attorneys are. They know the defense bar. And they know when they're in trouble, they're going to get a defense attorney or a public defender. They're going to get somebody on their side. I want people to know that the DA's office is on their side. And they need to know those prosecutors and meet them before there's an emergency emergency right. so that we can target resources and prevent crime from happening in the first place.
0: Um, our council um, members just recently um, voted a bill in the place that it is supposed to uh, prevent crime right It's supposed to be a tool of prevention which is license plate readers. Um, do you support something like that uh, here in, in, uh, in Nashville? Or is there other alternatives? Um, I guess when it comes to prevention, just because we're on it, that uh, that we can prevent crime, pre- prevent crime, but this that tool specifically of license plate readers. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, it's a complex issue because right. again, I wear numerous hats in the criminal right. justice system, and so I've been the civil rights coordinator, and I've been right. the human trafficking coordinator. Right. My goal is to solve crimes, right? I, right. Wanna, I wanna seek justice, I wanna keep the community safe. Those are two key things that a district attorney has to do. Mm-hmm. So LPR is a tool to do that, but is it a safe tool to do that? Are we violating people's civil rights? Mm-hmm. We have to make sure that there are guardrails on that that makes sure that people's civil rights are protected. But do I want to be able to find a missing child? Absolutely, and do I want to do that quickly? Yes. Just a couple weeks ago, um, there was a baby that was missing. There was an Amber Alert issued, and people were told to look for a specific vehicle, and it was a baby of Egyptian descent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you know we need to be using every tool that we can to solve crimes in a way that is still protecting people's civil rights. Right. So there's a balance to that and i think most people are in favor of the idea of solving crimes quickly and preserving resources and saving lives number one saving lives but making sure that we're doing it in a way that is not violating people's civil rights
0: yeah and um a lot of the things that i heard around that bill too is is it is it an equitable tool to use right um for all of nashville um because if we look at the demographic of how our roads and stuff, our landscape is set up, or where those LPRs will be placed, they're going to be placed majorly in neighborhoods that are black and brown, which raises eyebrows. Like, uh, okay, um, this could be a great tool, because I think people want to find you know, uh, people who have stolen cars or people who have um, kidnapped someone, right? If, if those tools can help, but at the same time, because of the relationship in the history, I think that those communities who will probably be impacted the most by these LPRs have with law enforcement, it creates that pushback a lot of time. And so if elected DA, how do you bridge those gaps with community that has suffered so much trauma, right? So much just historical pain and suffering and punishment Um, to kind of, you know, bridge that gap and be more transparent with law enforcement here and create really a bridge that people can start, like, building those relationships and having these type of conversations around, like, tools that could be help in preventing crime, but I just really just don't don't trust you, right? I just don't trust our legal system.
1: Absolutely. That's completely valid, and there are a lot of people who have no reason to trust the criminal justice system um, and for vast historical reasons. So... Absolutely. While this is a complex issue, mm-hmm. you, we can't be targeting communities you know, based on race, nationality, sexual orientation, any of those protected classes. Right. Um, but what we do want to make sure, yes, that we are solving crimes, but that we have the ADAs with the relationships in the neighborhoods that they're serving. So that's what I'm talking about is right. having the DA's office, not having the arrows go into it and right. being reactive, but being proactive and having the neighborhoods know okay, these are my assistant district attorneys. Mm -hmm. I can go to them when I have issues or concerns, and I want to make sure that they're hearing me. And I want to bring the nonprofits and the communities to the table. And if there are concerns, I want to know what those are so that we can address them before it becomes a major issue. Like the LPR debate has been huge in our community, and I'm glad that it's been huge. Um, It should be. It's very important in, in how we are detecting crime. And so bringing the nonprofits to the table is exactly what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I want to hear the voices of the people that it's going to disproportionately affect. And if it is, how can we alleviate that concern? How can we make it better? And how do you think that we can make it better is the most important thing. I want to hear and I want to understand and I want to make sure that the criminal justice system, predominantly, at least from the DA's perspective, is responsive to those concerns in a way that it historically has simply Mm -hmm. not been. Right.
0: I think another thing um, that's real big in our community here in Nashville that we always want to protect and prevent is around youth, right? You know, the youth is our future, right? Um, But I don't think in a lot of times um, our systems that that, that say they care for the youth, you know, promote that in a practical way. Um, Here in, um, I think in Tennessee, actually, we don't have like a minimum uh, kind of um, minor age on on certain offenses for our youth. So some some offenses youth can be charged, minors can be charged as adults, right? Um, around that in juvenile justice, if you're DA, how do you you know um, handle youth that have might have committed offenses, um, and how do you take a really deep dive until kind of. What that restorative justice may look like, what that punishment may look like, uh, but still understanding this is a minor um, and digging in deep, deeper than just what he or she done uh, on the surface.
1: Absolutely. So kids are a top priority for me because usually uh, once you get in the system, it's going to be when you're really young. Mm -hmm. And that is all preventable. And so what I want to make sure we're doing is working with the juvenile court system, working with nonprofits too in the precincts that are addressing the issues that are happening specific to that community and those kids involved with those issues. We have Mm -hmm. to be able to target and tailor resources in an unprecedented way. We simply haven't been doing that. It hasn't been tailored to the community in such a way to focus on prevention. And I want to create the office's first restorative justice unit. And so what does that look like? Um, It's really two-pronged. I want the assistant DAs to be assigned in that unit Mm -hmm. to people who are going to be released from prison, going back into the community, transitioning, and making sure that they have the resources that they need to succeed. Housing, jobs, drug addiction treatment, mental health wraparound service, all of the things that they need um, to be successful because I don't want to see them again. Right. I don't want to prosecute the same people over and over again. I'd rather not prosecute them in the first place. Right. So let's stop the kids from going into this system in the right. first place. And the second prong of the restorative justice unit will be for nonviolent offenses, finding solutions that do not involve incarceration, period. And if you can avoid having a criminal record as a child, you need to avoid having a criminal record as a child. Because once you're stamped with that, you're stamped with that forever. And that is something that has had a profound effect on me. My first week in the district attorney's office, when I was there, Mm -hmm. I saw a line of young men, predominantly young men, many people of color, wrapped around the side of the hallway, right. coming into the courtroom. And that particular ADA that I was shadowing that day was literally dishing out, here we are at Deep Dish Conversations, dishing uh, out... Uh, uh criminal records Mm. just boom 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 for people who walked in the door that is not a solution and that is not justice and I said well where are the lawyers where are the lawyers for these people like don't don't they know that you know they have rights and it was that particular docket and that's how it was handled and it bothered me on a fundamental level and I knew that that was not something that was not my definition of justice
0: and that's interesting you break that up because I think I think something like 90% of people get out anyway, right? Once they did the time they get out their back um, in our communities, right? And they don't have that support. Um, and even though they're supposed to be like guardrails like parole and probation and things like that to make sure they like, become more model citizens, I suppose, um, those things even create barriers, whether it's like getting a driver's license or finding, uh, affordable housing or, or transitioning out of halfway house and all of these things, it seems like they just make it tougher to kind of acclimate back to society and being in their community. There's not a lot of those wraparound services like, right. you know, because I don't want you to go back, right? But no—it's no, it's no real support of just making sure like just just stay out of trouble. That's the only. That we're gonna support you in that way, and that's by checking in and doing, uh, maybe drug testing or whatever it may be. But that's as far as it goes for many cases, unless you can find a nonprofit uh, or know of a nonprofit that you know have those wraparound services that can give you that extra support. And so I think that's, um, I think that's really needed, uh, in that wraparound services when it comes to, you know, being in, in cage and incarcerated to the release and then making sure like you're not. You don't have to really be tempted by the temptations uh, that may put you back in the same position because of you know uh, financial uh, your lack of financial stability or lack of housing stability and all those things that you know should be kind of a you know um, necessity just to just to, to be alive right but you know those are just not the case in um, a lot of times that we live in and some of us just don't have that same support so it'd be good to get the support from you know the system that you know that's supposed to be rehabilitating and supposed to be about prevention. Um, So it's good to hear that you have a plan for that. And I'm pretty sure like the listeners and watchers are really going to be like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. That sounds good. Yeah.
2: It's
1: it's a completely different approach to criminal justice that Nashville has just never seen before. Mm -hmm. Uh, If people can avoid having criminal records, especially kids, the DA's office needs to be invested in that and in their success and in their future. And I founded a nonprofit uh, eight years ago called Advocates for Women's and Kids Equality. AWAKE uh, is the acronym. And it's for those reasons, breaking the cycles of violence and mm-hmm. the cycles of poverty, that I am also extremely interested in bail reform. So right. I'll get to that again in a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's absolutely essential. But And it's, it all goes together, too. Right. These are These are issues that overlap in so many ways. But we developed a curriculum to right. help kids break those cycles, and volunteers are now teaching. I'm not on the board anymore. It continues. But volunteers are working in the juvenile detention center this spring, right. teaching kids who are there right. how to break the cycles of violence and poverty so that when they do get released, hopefully, they're going to have more resources and a chance at an actual future where they're not branded forever.
0: I want us to pivot to jail and prison. Um, and you mentioned something that is a hot topic, which is bail reform. Um, bail, money bail, cash bail, however you know about it. Some people believe that there should not be, um, money associated with a person's body in general, it should not be money attached to a human body. Um, and that should not dictate whether I am free or if I had to stay, uh, locked up, you know, um, pending trial or whatnot. What are your thoughts on, on money bail, cash bail? Um, and what is reform look like, um, uh, here in the Davidson County around bail in general?
1: Bail is one of those hot button issues that most people are afraid to touch from the district attorney side of things. Mm -hmm. I'm not it's absolutely something that the district attorney's office should be involved in because I've operated again in a number of different systems where I've seen in the federal system that I came from there wasn't any cash bail Mm -hmm. period you were reviewed on two criteria one are you a danger to the community and that's the primary issue and then two are you a flight risk and under Tennessee law there are factors that are essentially those same two criteria. Are you a danger and are you a flight risk? And there are ways to mitigate those things to where you don't have to be held Pre-trial. Now if you're a danger to the community, you do. Right. But there's a hearing that's held to determine whether or not you are, you do present a danger to the community. Uh, if you've committed a series of rapes, sexual assault, Painless homicide, crimes. absolutely. Yeah. You're a danger to the community. If you have a firearm and you're shooting
2: right. <laughs>
1: and you know you're risking hitting kids through windows, right. you, absolutely, you're a danger to the community. Right. Um, if you're dealing massive amounts of deadly opioids containing mm. fentanyl people are overdosing and they're dying, you are a danger to the community. But that's an analysis that's going to have to be made on a case-by-case basis. The problem with the bail system is that it's not tailored to the individual and the individual circumstances in a way that reflects are they going to show up to court? Are they going to be dangerous? And those are the key things that we worry about as a society. But someone who's charged with theft under 10,000 and another person who's charged with the same crime, one person can afford to get out pre-trial, another person can't. Maybe the person who can't afford to get out is going to take a guilty plea because it's right before Christmas, right. and they want to be home with their family. Right. That is not a reason to get a criminal record. Right. And that's why we have to overhaul that system. But it's not something that the DA's office can do alone, right. and I want to make that very clear. Right. You know, we this is going to be an ongoing process with mm-hmm. the courts because the courts, absolutely are the ones who are ultimately determining that. But the DA's office has not played enough of a role in pushing for any reform whatsoever. And so that's where I am the different candidate here. I am ready And we have to be ready to have these hard conversations, to take a look and say, this is not justice. Mm -hmm. When people are pleading guilty simply to get out pre-trial, and also because now, over the past several years, it's taken so much longer for cases to go to trial. A person is sitting in jail for much longer than they have historically, and that's Mm -hmm. unacceptable. That person has not been convicted of a crime yet. So they shouldn't be sitting in there simply because they can't afford to get out if they're not a. Danger, right. and if they're not a flight risk, there are ways to mitigate that.
0: I've been, uh, I had the opportunity to participate in uh, Court Watch, Community Court Watch. Excellent. Right? Which I think is a, uh, an amazing tool for a community. Um, and it's like your right, right, to be able to sit in the courtroom and, and observe judges. And a lot of times this comes up, um, especially in what is um, general sessions, I think, majority of time, or like uh, criminal court, where um, you may have people before a judge, and they have similar, similar offenses, um, and maybe a similar uh, criminal record, uh, but the bail is just drastically like different, right? We can we can have same offense, same criminal record, but my my bail might be twenty thousand, yours could be a hundred thousand. Um, how do we fix that? How do, what, what what is what is happening? How, make it make sense for us, and then also. What does that oversight look like, right? From a DA's perspective, trickling down like on what, I, what our what judges are doing and then what, what the the role of the community plays into that oversight as well.
1: Well, that's going to come back to the audit. <laughs> so we need, we need to know. Yeah, yeah. We need to know also not just, boy, this seems arbitrary. Like, why did this person get this bail and why did this person get this completely different one?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, is that just based on circumstance? Right. Or is there a racial disparity here? Right. And is somebody being treated differently? Right. Um, that audit is going to reveal those things. Like I said, mm-hmm. we have to lift up that rock. Right. Someone has to be courageous enough to actually look and see what's happening. And that can really shine a light to determine well, that's interesting because in this courtroom, things are happening a little bit differently, or in this precinct, things are happening a little bit differently. And how is that disproportionately impacting vulnerable communities? Why would a DA not want to do such an
0: audit like that? Because it seems like that type of audit would flip over a lot of, you know, a lot of rocks and uncover a lot of things that maybe people don't want to kind of just, you know, kind of discovery and all so that's something that hasn't happened you know uh with our current da and i don't know if it's if it's ever happened at all or something like that type of audit so what would be the challenges of something like that happening or what would be some of the maybe the fears of people wanting something of that such an audit to happen
1: well, I think the major pushback is simply going to be, oh, I don't want to see how bad it actually is. Or M, is my particular piece of the criminal justice system, is it going to reveal something there that I don't want it to reveal? Right. And that's that's the exact reason why we need to do it because we need to understand what's happening so that we can figure out where precisely the bias and those disparities are occurring. No one has been courageous enough to this point, but we have to be. And as a society, we have to be. And even if it's a hard truth, which I'm prepared for it to be a hard truth, Mm -hmm. we still have to face it. And we can't be afraid of the truth. But if we don't start from that place of truth, then we're never going to get to the systemic change, to that deep level right. that we need to be getting to in terms of criminal justice reform. Right. Otherwise, it's just surface. It's easy to cherry-pick a case for the media and say, this is gonna look great for the DA's office, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever particular reason, on a reason right. of race, on a reason of nationality, religion, right. whatever it happens to be, and say, this is gonna make my office look great and mm-hmm. make me look great, like right. a champion for justice. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know what the fundamental trends are that are actually happening in the city on a systemic level, right. you can't make that claim. Right. It's easy to do that if you're just going to make headlines and not make change. Right.
0: The DA's office plays a huge role in um, the prison and jail population. Yes. Whether that can be an increase or decrease, whichever way you want to take it. Right. Um, What are your plans or what are your ideas and goals to, I would say, hopefully reduce uh, the prison population um, here in Nashville and
1: throughout Tennessee? Absolutely. So that is key for me because they're absolutely related. and. With my background, the investigations that I have participated in, the cases that I've tried, have involved going into prisons uh, Mm -hmm. all over the Middle District of Tennessee. So I've seen the insides of jails, which is something that a lot of prosecutors haven't actually seen, Um, that needs to change too. We have to understand the system that we're sending people into to receive the reforms that we're saying that they're getting. What kind of rehabilitation are they actually getting while Incarcerated. That's why I want the first restorative justice unit in the DA's office because I want people who are transitioning out of the system to have hope and to have an actual chance at not reoffending and going back to the same situation that they were in. The DA's office should be playing a role in that and in that person's success. Currently, that's not the case. So I don't want the revolving door. I don't want the school-to-prison pipeline. I want to stop those things and get ahead of them before they start, and that's once again because safety and Mm -hmm. justice are not mutually exclusive. The DA has to be playing a role and has to be sitting at every table she can be sitting at. But it's, it's siloed at the moment, and we just can't have that anymore. It's not working. We can't just be reactive.
0: And I think it's an, another pivot when it comes to our jail and prison population is our immigrant population here in Nashville. Um, many of our immigrant and refugee population have different barriers, especially legally, um, because of fear of deportation or ICE or something like that, and may not want to show up to court or may not even have the, um, the, the resources, whether it's language barriers and there's no language justice. How do you plan on connecting? creating transparency and trust, I would say, with our immigrant
1: and refugee population here in Nashville. That is crucial for me. So as the human trafficking coordinator in our district, what I focused on too was hate crime outreach Mm -hmm. so that people knew that if something was happening to them, they could call 911 without fear of being deported. Mm -hmm. And I had numerous labor trafficking cases uh, involving people who we needed to keep here, that were not here, that, that were undocumented, but who were a crucial part of the case getting them a path to citizenship Mm -hmm. and working in that arena. I'm also the only person who has that experience in working on a federal labor trafficking case and making sure that our victims, that our witnesses are able to stay and get a path because we can't prosecute trafficking cases when our victims and our witnesses are being deported. Right. People are here to support their families, and deportation is an extreme measure that should only be taken in cases involving felonies, violent felonies. So if someone is here and they're undocumented and they commit a homicide, they commit a rape, that is a completely different situation. Right. But people living and working here who are struggling and are maybe in a domestic violence type situation and don't feel that they can call the police. I want to make sure that we're changing that culture by working with the nonprofits that serve undocumented communities mm-hmm. and people who uh, do not have English as a first language right. to make sure that we're getting the interpretation services that we right. need, too, so that they can understand our very complex criminal justice system. Right. Because even people who are citizens and don't, who do don't. speak English don't understand right. our complex criminal justice system. Even right. lawyers within the system right. have trouble understanding these. Bizarre intricacy sometimes. And the fear, right? The yes.
0: Fear if, if I'm an immigrant or refugee, the fear of being able just to call police and what, the, even though I might be a victim, I might become the suspect just because of where I'm from or the bias or implicit bias uh, that an officer somebody may have. Do you even belong here, right? How do, you, how do we eradicate that fear, right, of being able for our immigrant and refugee community to just even want to be able to reach out? And look for resources and support from our law enforcement or criminal legal system here.
1: Well, I've participated in hate crime awareness campaigns, as I said. So I'm, I'm used to bringing mm-hmm. different groups to the table. Um, especially, you know, during COVID, there was right. a rise in hate crimes against Asian communities. Right. We want to make sure that we're reaching the communities in a way of where they are, how they live and how they work. And it may be different from ours. So we have to make sure that we're reaching those communities. And I believe that that is the responsibility of the DA's office to make sure that we're reaching the communities that need the help most Mm -hmm. and that are afraid to call 911 and that don't have the trust of law enforcement. And in many cases, rightfully so. They haven't had good experiences with law enforcement in the past, Mm -hmm. and we need to change that. And some of that is training, and that's hate crime identification, too. We're missing so many hate crimes right Right. here in Nashville, simply because we're not asking the victims, you know, um, do you believe that you were targeted on the base of your race, on the base of your religion? Was that person wearing a hijab? You know, these these are details that Mm -hmm. we need to be paying attention to. And that's training. So when we have training and more of a community presence with Mm -hmm. this pre-saint model, we're going to be able to identify so many more of those issues that we can, how we can better serve Mm -hmm. the communities that we are supposed to be protecting. And not having a disproportionate number of people become victims in a certain community because they're afraid of repercussions that simply shouldn't be happening.
0: Speaking of training in, in, in victims, we just recently had um, a victim uh, who was experiencing mental health issues on I-65 that was unfortunately killed um, by our local police here, um, here in Nashville. A lot of people may see, you know, um, arresting our mental health crisis that we have is not the answer um, and putting those individuals um, in jail or in prison due to mental health um, and I have a, like a stat that I seen which was crazy was that uh, in, in 2019 a study found that Tennessee were among states with a higher prevalence of mental health illness and a lower rate of access to care right and so that's just a recipe for disaster right um, as DA how do you combat um, mental health issues being um, jailed or what, what are some prevention around that because that's a you know that's a whole different category in itself and dealing with that and dealing with that within the criminal legal system
1: mental health is one of the most important issues in the criminal justice system between mental health and addiction treatment I mm-hmm. believe those are the top two issues in our criminal justice system uh, in terms of how we handle people mm-hmm. uh, who are experiencing those crises and we need more resources just period, we need more mental health resources. And I really do applaud any effort at trying to address those issues that are nonviolent mm-hmm. and non-threatening in a way that is working with community services right. and a person who understands how to de-escalate situations with a person who's suffering from a mental health crisis. Right. And it's my understanding, too, that you know we have a pilot program in place um, you know, where we're deploying in certain parts of the city mm-hmm. uh, a mental health expert, a provider who's able to come and right. uh, be present with police right. um, mm-hmm. to help talk people, uh, right. use de-escalation right. techniques, rather, um, than, than arrest them right. on the spot. And in the sheriff's office, as well, how are we addressing even even the optics of care are they going to be in a jail cell or are Mm. they going to be in something that's more akin to a treatment facility where people are dressed in scrubs and it's more of a treatment type of approach as opposed to you are a violent person who Mm. needs to be behind bars Um, you know a lot of that is extremely draconian and is just not educated and informed but I, I do applaud any steps in that direction, and I believe Nashville is starting to take that from the side of uh, P D and the Sheriff's Office, working to get more mental health professionals But the DA's office needs to be working on that too. I haven't seen any efforts um, in that particular field to try to get more resources and to understand the percentage of people who are claiming a mental health issue Mm -hmm. and then determining, okay, well, this is the percentage of people who are suffering from mental health issues or say they are and need to be evaluated, absolutely. And then what is the result of that? Are they being incarcerated? Are they getting treatment? If they are getting treatment, how are they getting treatment? You might have seen a trend in what I'm saying. Like I want to know what's going on. Right. And data is crucial to understanding what's going on so that we can actually address the problem. Right. But we need more mental health facilities in Nashville. Right. We need to decriminalize mental health, period. Right. And we just need more money to do that. But first, we need to be able to look at it within the criminal justice system right. and say, here is where we need it. The mental health court, too, absolutely essential. essential like, yeah. yes, we need that. And right. you know what? We need more.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you
0: can, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Eight-year term is a long time. Sure is. <laughs> right? It is. It's a long time. And... Um, I believe, in my personal opinion, I I believe that uh, the DA probably is the most powerful individual of our county, city, uh, criminal legal system. And that's a lot of power, right? That's a lot of power and power is dynamic. Um, If elected DA of Davidson County, how do you plan to use your power, right? For the next possible eight years to make sure there's a just and equitable criminal legal system here in Nashville.
1: I plan to use the DA's office to seek the criminal justice reform that we need now mm-hmm. on a systemic level. I don't mean a surface level. Right. The DA's job is crucial, as you said, and it is an extremely powerful role. And with that comes amazing responsibility. Responsibility right. that I haven't seen taken. Right. I've I've heard a lot, you know, I've heard a lot about reform and I haven't seen it. Right. Where is it in the numbers? Right. The homicide rate, the violent crime rate has gone up over the past eight years. Right. And you can see that happening right. uh, just in the data itself. Mm-hmm. It's taking longer for people to go to trial, right. there are more people uh, of color right. who are disproportionately affected by the system. Just last year, 80% of homicide victims were people of color. Mm-hmm. To me, that is not progress. Right. That is the opposite of progress. Right. And. I could not stand by and watch this happen. Not someone with a civil rights background, Mm -hmm. with a focus on crime prevention, on civil rights, and on restorative justice, who knows what can be done with that office. We need a fresh face, a fresh perspective, and uh, really a fresh, complete overhaul. (laughs) Complete overhaul of how the DA's office operates in Nashville, and we deserve it. Nashville deserves better.
0: And so um, we're gonna get a little deeper right now.
1: Deep dish, we're gonna I'm get ready. A little deeper.
0: <laughs> because I think this is this is positive to me that you bring up this systemic change, right? Which is which is which is different <laughs> than just change, right? Because you're really looking at the disparities that a system has created and that a system is perpetuating. That might scare a lot of folks because when we talk about systemic change, um, majority of the time we talking about black folks people of color and poor folks right especially in the criminal legal system right in um, the demographics here in Nashville is about 70 70%, 70-ish percent white about 25 percent you know black right and so and within you look at this uh, the disparities right of well, well, black folks are 25 percent but we but we're 60 percent of the, the prison population here that that's that's some systemic going on right there right? What, um, what challenges can you foresee? or maybe have you heard that could be there could be barriers for you to implement systemic change here in Nashville? Um, we're a blue city, progressive city but a red state, right? Um, how does that affect some of your goals and some of the plans that you want to implement?
1: I am so used to operating in this environment. Um, And it takes people from across the political spectrum, too. You know, this is a partisan race, right? right? Like, I am running as a Democrat, but I am serving people regardless of their political affiliation, regardless of their socioeconomic status, their race, their nationality. Mm -hmm. And that is what that office should be. It should be a pursuit. Of justice, right. but yes, how do you how do you get that change done? Right. Considering where we are, right. um, I have a history of doing that. I am, in fact, the only candidate with a history of doing that, right. and that is through the nonprofit. You mm-hmm. know, we have drafted, lobbied, and gotten nine pieces of right. legislation passed through our general assembly, which right. looks very different from Nashville. Right. And you have to understand that dynamic, and you can't just shake your fist and yell at it and say, um, I stand for progress. Well, Mm -hmm. good, that's great, you know, that sounds wonderful. But what are you accomplishing for the people that you're Mm -hmm. serving? Right. Are you still going to be able to protect trans people right. you know, so that you know they can use whatever bathroom they want right. to? Are you still going to be able to protect and not prosecute low-level drug crimes? Right. Not when you shake your fist like that. Not when you do that. Right. I have a completely different approach. I've gotten legislation passed, mm-hmm. and legislation that has not been popular or what would be considered popular, right. given the environment that we live in. Right. That's giving women an opportunity with a history of prostitution, And drug addiction who are HIV positive, an opportunity to get off the sex offender registry. That passed. We got that piece of legislation passed. We got child sexual abuse prevention required to be taught in every public school in the state of Tennessee. That is systemic change. And there's a lot of pushback on those issues right. from the General Assembly. Right. But we have to be able to talk to people mm-hmm. who don't necessarily agree with us. Right. And I'm not afraid to do that. Right. But you can do that in a strategic, diplomatic way that will accomplish real change mm-hmm. as opposed to just talking about getting change done. Right. I'm tired of words and listening to people who sound like they're for progress. Right. And then you look at the results and say, right. where where are the results? Right. Right. I am about results. Mm-hmm. I may not be as loud, but I'm effective, right. and I will take being effective over being loud, any day.
0: If elected um, district attorney, many um, I'm it this way. Many times when we see um, we see our candidates on these campaign trails, right? We see them all the time, right? Like, oh, hey, there you go, Sarah again, or whatever, right? And then once they're elected. A lot of times, you know, many of them just disappear, you know. They they, they they're in that seat and they're not as, as engaging into the community as they were on their campaign trail. They didn't keep that same type of energy, right? They all right. And they may do some of the things that they talked about and they may not. Who knows, right? Um this is a risk that we all have to take, right, when we're voting. Um, how do you plan to stay tapped in and connected to the community that you you know, that you already connected to but don't let the role of DA kind of um Kind of diminish that a little bit and kind of, you know, I know you got to move around maybe a little differently, but kind of still be able to keep those connections and you know, those real, I think, relationships with the nonprofits, with communities, uh, different backgrounds, ethnic group, races, genders, and all of those things while still holding that uh, DA position.
1: That is an excellent question because I've never been accused of being lazy or invisible. I am an extremely visible person because I care. (laughs) I want to be where the action is happening, where the decisions are being made, and that's where the DA's office needs to be in a way that simply has not been visible before. Mm -hmm. So that's the precinct model. I will be attending at least one of these meetings in every single precinct Mm -hmm. over the course of a year so that I get to know what's happening personally in the communities because I have a personal vested interest in the success of our city of our criminal justice city of our criminal justice system and what's going on in the office like I need to know internally how we're handling things that we're finding externally like I said I founded that nonprofit Mm -hmm. Uh, I was on the board of Thistle Farms I'm currently on the board of communities and schools these are organizations that mean so much to me on a personal level Mm -hmm. because I'm invested and it's not just something that I've started doing because I'm running for office Um, people, you know, used to tease me in the office, like you're out in the community all the time, you know, you should be at your desk. I said, no, as a prosecutor, it is my job to be in the community and to understand the people that I am serving and to learn from them and to hear new issues that I didn't even know were issues. And if I'm not out there, I'm not going to learn about what's going on Mm -hmm. in the different communities that I'm serving because a prosecutor is a public servant first and foremost. And that change has to come from someone who understands the system, has operated in it, and who genuinely cares and is involved in the community. And that's me.
0: What does eight years of Sarah Beth as DA look like for Nashville?
1: It looks like a revolution in our criminal justice system as we know it. We've never had a DA's office be so external facing Is what I envision the office being. So embedded in a part of the community in a way that is healthy, that is productive, that shows mercy. Um, And that is understanding, but still, when there are violent offenses, we have to keep the community safe. So it is a balance. It is absolutely those scales of justice. We're gonna keep the community safe. We've got to clean up what's been happening in Nashville. We have to make sure that violent crime is being addressed. It's currently not. We have to stop the revolving door of crime, and we can do that by preventing it. And that's why crime prevention, civil rights, and restorative justice all have to work together. Those are the three pillars of my campaign. Those will be the three pillars of my tenure as DA. And I want people to be able to approach the DA's office and not be scared, not be intimidated or threatened by it. It needs to be a welcoming place where people are coming to for answers um, as opposed to just expecting the worst and expecting punishment and harsh treatment. No, we need restorative justice. Mm -hmm. We need to know what's going on in our community. We need to be preventing people from going into the system and preventing violence. And when people do commit violent crimes, there are consequences for those actions. We need to be addressing that locally, not leaving it to the federal government to pick up the slack for what we're not doing locally. So we can do all of that. It is a brighter future. Mm It is a more open DA's office. It is transparent. And that's what we need right now for this moment.
0: Last question. And this is probably the the hardest question (laughs) I would say. Oh, boy. What will you do differently that is not currently happening
1: in our current DA administration? I think everything I just described is completely different. One is focusing on that crime prevention model that mm-hmm. I mentioned. The office is reactive. We have to be proactive, mm-hmm. stopping crime before it starts. Two civil rights, transparency, doing that audit of the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. We have to understand exactly where the disparities are so that we can address them. And three, restorative justice. When crime does occur, how are we handling that as a DA's office? For violent crime, incarceration, Mm -hmm. and rehabilitation, assigning ADAs to people transitioning, and for nonviolent offenses, making sure that we don't involve incarceration and that we focus on rehabilitation and alternatives. Those are all completely different Mm -hmm. from what is currently happening in the office right now, and that transparency is crucial.
0: Sarah Beth, I thank you for your time. I really enjoyed hearing you go in deep, in depth on um, a lot of things that, you know, Some would say radical, but I would say maybe necessary. Uh, (laughs) um, Just in our criminal legal system in general, um, in the the society and the culture that we live in, in in, in the county and the city that we live in as well. So um, thank you for your time. Thank you for your availability. Um, How can people support you? The early voting is April 13th. April 13th. And then the actual voting day is May 3rd. May 3rd. How can people support you, your campaign financially, or reach out to you, learn more about your platform and the things that you want to do here for our great city of Nashville?
1: Thank you for asking. Yeah. We need as many volunteers as possible. So, if people want criminal justice reform now, if they like what they heard, which I hope they did, um, then you can go to Myers for da.com. That's MyersForDA.com. That's M Y E R S F O R D A.com. You can sign up for our email list. You can volunteer. You can get a yard sign. You can contribute. As you know, I'm running against an incumbent, which means that, of course, he has more resources. I only got in this race on December 1st, but the momentum is intense, raised over $110,000 in six weeks. So we are keeping the momentum. People want change. And that tells me that people want change, but we need more people. I want an army of volunteers. We are going to get this done. So I need energy in this campaign. I need contributions for this Mm -hmm. campaign. And I need people who are ready to vote for Sarah Beth Myers for criminal justice reform on May 3rd. Right.
0: People get out there and vote. This is huge. It can literally change our whole criminal legal system of what happens or what doesn't happen. So if you're not registered, go register to vote. And um, Sarah Bell, I appreciate it again. Thank you. Got to have you
1: back. I appreciate you. I'm glad to come back. This was really fun. Okay, cool.
0: And we have pizza for
1: you. There's pizza. Excellent. Great. I'll I'll never turn down pizza. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much.